we got here just in the nick of time. What does that make us? Big damn heroes, sir. Ain't we just? The film is called Adnan. Hi, I'm Mark Rigo, and you're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4. Hi, my name is Anthony Mindel. I'm the writer and director, and I act in the Paris International Film Festival's entry, Some of Us. You are listening to Shoot the Breeze. Hi, my name is Denis Dobrovoda. I'm a director and writer of Savage, which is screening at the festival. Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM, the film and TV radio show where a handful of film enthusiasts shoot the breeze about all things film and television. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and I've just been diving into the various films that are on the Paris International Film Festival. I am producer Dave and yeah I've been watching some of the films on the film festival as well I've been very much enjoyed what I've seen so far as well what about yourself? yeah I don't I don't want I don't want to mention anything just yet because there's some that there's some that are, are really really good and you get the chance to to rank them and boy I've the talent on there is just phenomenal with the work that's that's been showcased on on, on the film festival, just basically going on to Filmocracy website, when just you, you get the festival pass, you go into Filmocracy website, you watch some of these films, and the talent on display is just phenomenal. I'm, I'm really, really deep, just like seriously impressed by some of the stuff that we've done. And I'm not going to waste too much time. I know I, I know I gab too much. We'll wait till the next few episodes for us to chat a lot more on, on everything else that we've been doing and so on. We, we want to spare as much time as possible so we can cram as many interviews as possible that we've done. Uh, we're going to be having some interviews that you will listen to, listen to on this episode uh, with filmmakers from Invisible Love and A Prison Within and many, many other films that we are going to be able to cram into this particular episode. Now we'll have this episode, which will be airing on Resonance 104.4 FM, and we'll have a podcast episode as well. Then we'll have more films, from more interviews from more filmmakers that we'll release early on Sunday, which you can catch before the festival ends. The festival is ending on the 14th of February. Go onto the website as soon as you can. Go and check out those wonderful films. Anyway, enough of me yakking. Let's jump to Spotlight. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus Diaco, and I'm here with another filmmaker from the Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your name and the film that you have in the festival. Uh, I'm uh, Daniel Perez, and uh, the film uh, I've done uh, this year was in the festival was uh, The Archibald Syndrome. Excellent. Tell us about your film. The film is a fantastic comedy about uh, a guy who want to control everything in his life. And uh, it's a metaphor about this uh, disability. So every time he makes a move or he does something, everybody around him is obliged to do the same thing. So it's a little bit problem. And what, uh, what sort of influences did you have in the, uh, in the construction of this film and making that sort of informed the creation of this film? Well, a lot of people, when they are looking at the movie, at the end, they talk to me about uh, Tarantino in the art direction, I think, not in the story. Uh, but if I have to talk about the story and everything, 
uh, I think it's more an influence about the, the movies I was watching in the 80s and the 90s at the video clubs when I was a kid. And it's more about Tim Burton and everything. So a Tim Burton fantastical comedy, if you will. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Yeah. So what inspired you personally to make this film? Uh, well, when you write something, it's not the same as just to direct it. If you write it, it's because it's really personal. So I think it's something that affects me also, you know, to want to control everything. I think that affects every director's. <laughs> so it was kind of uh, exercising. And how long did it take you to come up with the project and make the project and then bring it to its complete fruition that now it's in the Paris International Film Festival? Well, it has been like uh, two years, I think. But in France, it's a little bit different because in France, it's a, lot, a little bit difficult to produce fantastic movies. Uh, we are more in a realistic cinema here in this country. So it's a little bit difficult to do these kind of movies, but at the end, we succeeded. And that's, that's fantastic as well. It's good to know that this is, is something that we get to, because there's a, not a lot, especially now with COVID and the pandemic, it's sort of, we know uh, that there's going to be an influx of quarantine-based uh, dramas, if you will. It's good to be able to see that there's going to be something coming out that is actually more fantastical and and uh, imaginative, and it's coming out. So now you're, you're is it, is it, are we right in understanding that the Paris International Film Festival is essentially this film's debut? Is this sort of your uh, No, it has been running on a lot of festivals around the world, actually. It has been, uh, well, and uh, I think by now we are lucky because it's winning a lot of awards of uh, best, best film and uh, best uh, scenario and everything. It has been winning uh, 16 uh, awards around the world in Europe and the United States and uh, even in India, in, yeah, in South Africa, in a lot of countries. So I'm really glad because it's okay, it's winning, it's, that's a good thing, but the most important is it has been seen a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's good that it's actually getting that much traction. It's going around the world. Everyone can actually get to see it. Now, uh, For there are a lot of people who are going to be tuning in to the various uh, programs on Paris International Film Festival to be to catch your film. Uh, is there any, any other way other than the Paris International Film Festival that people can get to see your film or get to know more about it, maybe follow you on social media? Well, I'm not a social media really connected guy <laughs> because uh, I'm working on advertising. So I, that's little also, you know, I'm directing and, and advertising and doing working on agencies and everything. So that's my daily, you know, uh, work. So I'm not used to do it personally, but uh, they can have uh, watch the movie, uh, well, have information about the movie and everything with the production house, which is Bag and Film. Excellent. And am I right in because I'm, I'm apologize if I butcher the name of the film. Is it Le Syndrome de Archibald? Exactly. Excellent. Le Syndrome de Archibald by Daniel Perez uh, currently is going to be uh, played at the Paris International Film Festival uh, between the weeks of the 4th and the 14th of February. Daniel, thank you very much for taking your time to talk to us on Shoot the Breeze about your film. And we, we wish it all continued success as it carries on around the world. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm David Campbell. And we have with us another filmmaker who has uh, their film in the Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your name and the name of the film. My name is Catherine Cronin and the film is called Cold Call. Excellent. Catherine, welcome to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. What is Cold Call all about? Cold Call is actually about a scam. Um, it's a scam that ran a few years ago here in the United States. Um, and essentially someone gets a call and they pick up and the only thing they can hear is a woman screaming. Um, and most people, as soon as they hear this, they instantly assume that it's someone from their life, whether it's a daughter or a husband or a sister. Um, and so begins the negotiation. Now the gentleman comes on the line. He says, you know, I have your daughter's sister wife. Uh, Unless you wire me X amount of money, I'm going to shoot her in the head. 
Um, so it's about one of those phone calls. Uh, it actually happened to my father. So the film is based on the conversation that he had. Luckily, my father figured it out before he wired any money, but unfortunately, a lot of people don't. Um, so this is about one of those calls. And the, the, the thing about it is that the gentleman who gets the call is estranged from his daughter. So he's not sure um, whether it's true or not. You know, he doesn't have much basis to go on. So ultimately, it's a way for him to kind of reconnect with his with his daughter. But it's a it's a tense film, that's for sure. That's <laughs> it's a, a tense situation. Yes, yeah, a fantastic premise for a thriller. Um, yes. I, I, I haven't, I haven't, um, I haven't seen the film. I haven't gotten any. Uh, I haven't seen any of the uh, work. I know you may have sent some details to us, but I, unlike any other professional radio host podcaster, I do no research whatsoever. I prefer to talk to <laughs> filmmakers. And stuff. So, makes sense. <laughs> um, exactly. Uh, so, in, in my head, the the types of films, the the uh, the kind of films this sort of ties into are uh, examples like Buried with Ryan Reynolds. Uh, and the the one with Tom Hardy where he's in a car driving yeah. on the road and it's just is that the same kind of film where we get where it's only one character with the phone and you just hear a voice on the other end is that a style yeah. of film yeah that's very similar I mean we we toyed with the idea of seeing the other two people on the phone because I mean the girl who's screaming is part of the scam right um, of course. she's an actress essentially <laughs> So we toyed with the idea of seeing her and seeing the caller, but we decided that it was much more interesting to not know who the call was coming from at the very until the very last minute when he figures it out. So yeah, you never see you never see the callers. Um, you see his daughter very briefly, but only through FaceTime because he FaceTimes her and he's able to get a visual on her and realize that she's not in any danger. Um, so that lasts about three seconds so but, um, that's that's perfect i mean that's yeah. that, that's how i would suggest that you do it because you want to keep the 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 um the the viewers uh, the audience guessing until the very moment that you want to pull the the you know pull the curtain aside to show it is all fake right yeah. so you want you you know and that's where the twist keeps coming where the person on the other line might make a slight mistake and then mm -hmm. you think oh well was that a mistake or was it just something different and so on maybe as they were estranged and so on so it sounds perfect for tense taut psychological drama and thriller yeah. um okay so as you as i was gonna my next question was gonna be what inspired you to to do this but as you mentioned you, yeah this is based yeah. on real <laughs> events and i'm real events I'm glad that the the call to your to your dad was fake and not you actually on the other line uh, on the other end of the line being uh, kidnapped. Did you do any other research, any subsequent research uh, on the project? Uh, you know, on on this phenomenon of called this um, ransom cold call before you started writing the script and making the movie. Well, at first we weren't sure if the call that my dad got was just some um, you know teenagers just generally being unpleasant or if it was actually a legitimate ransom call. We, my dad did call the FBI to, record, uh, to report it and they said, you know, there wasn't much they could do about it, but it was a, um, a group of people that had been doing this. They had been targeting 310 area code phone numbers, which is in LA. Um, and it was a group of people that were pretty well organized and had made a lot of money. So, I mean, I, I guess I did some research too in the fact that I knew someone else whose grandparents had received this call um, and they unfortunately did transfer a lot of money um, because they, the other thing they do is they call really early in the morning. The thing is, it's not very likely that whoever's being kidnapped is going to pick up the phone because they're probably sleeping. And that's what happened with a friend of mine. You know, she was sleeping. She didn't hear the phone ring and her grandparents transferred, you know, something like $50,000 just because they're terrified and they have no way to prove that, you know, she's not in danger. Of course, of course, yeah. and obviously targeting uh, elderly relatives who don't yeah. the who are not that close with the uh, with the family members who are being uh, you know who are supposedly being abducted. So and it's uh, aren't that keating with technology, if you know what I mean? Because like most people, you know, they can be like, "Oh, this sounds like a scam. This seems a little weird. This isn't quite real." But you know, someone who's not as familiar with you know the abundance of scams that we find in our computers and whatnot might say, oh, shoot, like maybe I should do something, so. Did they ever catch the perpetrators of the, the, the cold calls? Nope. <laughs> it, it could still be going on. Yeah. Yep, yep. As you said, unless, unless the, unless, and as you, you mentioned, the FBI said that they don't, they didn't, there was nothing really they could do from that point, because unless the- The only thing they knew was that they were tracing the calls to Mexico. 
and that's my point. They can do at that point anyway, you know. That's my point exactly. Unless you unless you have a trace on the line as the call is happening and are able to trace it, and although we see it in CSI and all these other TV shows, (laughs) it's not as easy as the TV shows tend to tell you. not just very easy to actually set up a wiretap and find out exactly where they're coming from. So that those kind of scams are pretty um, difficult to track down and uh, and arrest the culprits. Uh, right. But you, honestly, it's this the the idea of the story is just buzzing in my brain right now. Who did you get to play your dad, or you know the fill in the surrogate for your dad? Yeah, his name is Michael O'Neill. Um, he's a wonderful actor. He's one of those people who you you'll you'll recognize when you see him. Um, he's been in a lot of films, um, but you would recognize him if you saw him. And another thing that we did to just completely torture poor Michael is that um, we set the entire film in LA traffic. So he's in a traffic jam. There's, you know, there's cars that are honking. There's people that are yelling. There's pedestrians wandering around in and out of the cars. So I wanted him to feel like he was absolutely trapped in the situation. There was nowhere for him to go and nothing for him to do. He's alone in the sense that he's in his car, but he's surrounded by chaos as well as the chaos that he's hearing on the phone. Sounds like a nightmare. And yeah. <laughs> I felt so bad for Michael doing the scene because it was like, oh my gosh, like how many awful things can I throw at him at once and just tell him to respond? <laughs> it's like, it's pretty awful. I felt um, guilty, but he did my- an amazing job. Michael O'Neill, uh, he's uh, from The West Wing, and it's a lot of yeah. a lot of a lot of TV shows that I've seen him in. He always plays an authority or the authority figure, like uh, you know, police officer or soldier, detective, Secret Service, especially. So yes, but we're, yes. a very recognizable face. I, I can't wait to I can't wait to see the film. So now you've you had the good fortune of having it. Paris International Film Festival. So tell yeah. us, how did you get to find out about the film festival and what feelings uh, do you have towards your film being accepted in as uh, part of the official selection in this festival? Well, I'm, I'm very grateful to be part of it. It's a wonderful film festival. It's such a, a shame that this year is, and last year have shaped out the way they have been with COVID that you know I can't be there in person to really enjoy it the way it was meant to be enjoyed, but that's kind of the nature of things. Um, but I'm thrilled to be accepted. Um, it's an honor. I was actually introduced to the Paris Film Festival through someone called the Film Doctor, um, and she has represented our film in a number of film festivals. That's Rebecca Smith. And she's been fantastic in kind of ushering us in the places that we need to go. Because, you know, it's one thing to make a film. It's completely different to do the festival circuit. It feels like it's another thing. It's like, I don't, I know how to make the film, but I don't know what to do with it afterwards. So she's been fantastic and kind of midwifing that through. That is absolutely fantastic. And so the short, uh, which is uh, Cold Call, what do, what do you intend on doing with that particular project after the festival run? Um, good question. I, I would love to obviously find a home for it. It's a little bit difficult to find homes for shorts. You know, it's it's a very niche thing. But ultimately, I mean, we make shorts that we can ultimately one day make features. So hopefully, you know, people will see it and think it's an interesting story or that um, me as a director might have some potential and um, I can continue working. You're an actress as well? I am, yes. I, I do a little bit of everything. Um, that probably sounds very conceited of me, but... Well, you're, you're speaking to me, who is, who is the okay, king of fair. doing everything. So, okay, yeah. that's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, I write, I produce, I direct, and I act. So it kind of depends on the project um, um, as to where I kind of fit. So this one I wrote and I directed. Um, the original script was actually written by my dad, who was also my business partner. He's a producer. He's been in the business for a very, very long time, but he's worked in a number of different roles as well. I mean, he started out as a location manager, and kind of worked his way up to um, uh, being a producer. So one of his earlier films that he was a location manager on was Raging Bull. Luckily, I have him to kind of help me, guide me in the business. That's fantastic. I mean, looking at your, looking at your filmography, you, you, have, you, you happen to have uh, The Last Ship on your, um, on your cast of, of credits, right? So mm-hmm. did you get to work with Adam Irigoyen? Um, no, I did not. That was a couple of years ago, too. This summer... Um, during COVID, did a, had a scene on Yellowstone, which is on oh, Paramount. Yes. You've named two shows in particular where we've recently happened to uh, have interviews with Adam Irigoyen from The Lost Ship and um, Denim Richards from Yellowstone. So, okay. it, uh, yeah, so you're just so the, the whole trifecta is you're you're the li- you're the link that connects those two it's together. A small world, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, that's the yeah. thing. And 
And uh, yeah, we're happy to, to be able to share and happy to have brought you on, on Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, what, after Cold Call, what other projects are you working on? Because I know obviously COVID has locked down a lot of uh, chances. Yeah. What are you working on? So I'm currently working on a pilot and a feature film. So both of them are in the you know, pre, pre-production status because again, you can't do much. But the pilot is um, being pitched currently and there's some interested parties in the feature. We're looking at you know, the financing aspect of it and um, attachments and whatnot. I've um, done the short film thing. I think it's time to kind of take the next step. Absolutely. And if listeners want to find you, find Cold Call uh, and follow your work, how can they follow you on social media? Not in real life, but in social media. They can follow me. Um, so Catherine Cronin, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, Cronin, C-R-O-N-Y-N. The best place to follow me is on Instagram. Um, we also have a website that kind of keeps everybody up to date in terms of our projects, and that's fullcirclefilmsllc.com. Excellent. We're going to be following you on uh, Instagram pretty shortly. Uh, Shoot the Breeze, Residence 104.4 FM. Catherine, thank you very much for joining us uh, today. Uh, And uh, we wish you all the best with Cold Call in Paris International Film Festival. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm producer Dave and uh, we've got some guests who are going to be talking about their film that's going to be shown at the Paris International Film Festival. Love to ask you all about the film so please introduce yourself. Um, Hi, I'm Mark Arrigo and um, me and my creative partner Stephen who will introduce himself have made a short film called Adnan which is about a Syrian refugee boy dealing with his mother's post-traumatic stress disorder um, after they've made the journey. And yeah, we're very happy to be included in this year's Paris International Film Festival. And I'm Stephen Chatterton, uh, everything that Mark just said. So we are co-directors of Adnan, the short film. Uh, very happy to be part of Paris this year. I uh, wish we could be there in person, but that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> and. Uh, yeah we're really hoping that everyone gets to see our film it's a little message of love and compassion and consideration in this crazy old world so uh, i hope the patrons of paris do enjoy our our little film okay you gave us a little hint about what the film's about but can you just give us a little bit more detail obviously don't tell us what the ending is we don't want to spoil it but yeah just give us a little bit more detail so the, the viewers or the listeners can actually have an idea so, yes, yeah, so whenever we pitch the film or, or, or describe the film, people always think it's a documentary, but it is a piece of, of scripted drama that is essentially about a Syrian refugee boy and his mother who've made it all the way from Syria, from Aleppo, their home, which was a war zone. Um, they've made it all the way to safety to the UK and they have lost the rest of their family, sadly, uh, to the war. So it's just uh, boy and Uh, son and mother and now they are settled in in safety in the UK this is where our story with them begins and the little boy the whole story is told from the little boy's perspective and he he has no understanding of what PTSD is but he knows that his mother is confused and she seems forgetful and she doesn't seem to really understand where she is and what's going on and and he knows that if he doesn't fix mommy then they're going to be separated and they've only got each other now. So, so he comes up with a plan because he can't let that happen. And what that plan is, we won't reveal because that is uh, kind of core to the film, but it's an ingenious, creative little plan. Uh, it's not even a little plan, it's a massive plan um, from this little boy. So I think that's all we would say, Mark. It's a very human story about you know, the relationship between a young boy and his mother and a young boy trying his best to overcome a very real adult problem, which is mental health. It's, there's a lot going on in this film, obviously. Um, what was the inspiration behind the film? Uh, well, no, I mean, there's lots of things that were inspiration for this film. Um, Stephen and I had previously made a film um, which was told from a little girl's perspective, dealing with trying to help her mum get over grief of the loss of her husband. Um, And we just were looking for a film to kind of progress from that. And this was back in, God, when was it, Stephen? 2017? 2017, end of. 
end of. So this is when like the Syrian crisis was, you know, just headlining in the media. Um, and we just felt that there was just kind of a very political narrative um, going out there. And we just wanted to tell a, a beautiful story about, as we said, you know, a young boy dealing with a very difficult problem. And it just kind of evolved from there, really. It was just a response to, like Mark says, the story was so prevalent in the news and the nature of the news stories was very dehumanising and people were reduced to statistics. Sadly, so often statistics of number of people who may have died in a boat that uh, capsizes, for example. And so we just wanted to tell a very human story. And what, what better, more in moving way than to tell a story, to, to present this global political world situation fr from the perspective of a boy and his mother. It was a way to, to, to engage the hearts of the viewers, we think. I, I agree with you there because um, unfortunately statistics tell one story, but they don't tell everyone's story. And um, it is one way of um, hiding some of the truths that are out there. Where and how long did it take you to make this film? <laughs> It depends where, where, you, where you put a pin in the start. I mean, we first started talking about it probably a good year before we actually kind of kicked into gear. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I'd probably say there was about eight months of solid pre-production. And then we shot the film over six days. But oh, I mean, we can go into more detail on the shoots. It was, it was like a military operation. And, um, and then the post-production I don't even know how long that took. It still, it still feels like it's, it's going on. It's obviously not, but it took a long time. Uh, just lots of back, back and forth. Yeah. Um, um, but as you, as you know, it's kind of like, you know, the first object is, you know, getting the concept, then getting, you know, people to believe in it, um, and then getting the financing, which for a short film is very difficult. And we tried so many different routes. Um, then the casting, when you're doing a production like this, where you want to be, so true to the source material and be respectful to, you know, these are, you know, we're dealing with subjects that a lot of people go through and are very, very traumatic. Um, and we were very sensitive towards that. So we spent a lot of time um, engaging with the Syrian community and the Syrian community in the UK and um, charities like Help Refugees Choose Love, who became a big charity partner of ours. Um, and you know that you know we we were very ambitious, but also wanted to be very respectful of that voice. So we spent a lot of time at the beginning just making sure we did it in as good as way as we possibly could from our position um, to also give people the opportunity to have their their voices heard. And you know, even within the production, we incorporated. You know, I'd done some work in Calais building shelters prior to this. Um, and met a lot of people there and a lot of refugees who then came over and, you know, became part of the crew and became part of the art department. Um, you know, so it was a real, you know, we really created a community in building this project, um, which took a lot of time to do. Mm. How long is the film? 15 minutes. So you pack a lot in 15 minutes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just, I just want to build on something that Mark was saying as well there, uh, David, in that we were, we were trying to balance this, this uh it's not even a conundrum but essentially we wanted to create a piece create a piece of cinema and be true to everything that cinema is so in that respect creating something that's visually uh very impressive and engaging but also telling this incredibly personal story and sensitive story because we want to honor uh all, all of those people who've been through anything like an experience that are to to um characters in adnan have been through so it was it was kind of a, a a balancing act of those two things to be very when when people see the film that there's an element to to the the visual storytelling that is very big um and yet also to just maintain those quiet tender moments that what what it is to be a a, a confused little boy whose mommy isn't well um so it was a real balancing act between those two things are the uh, stars of the film regular actors or are they brand new to acting so the little boy uh, is himself a Syrian refugee boy. And that for us was, was very crucial to the story that we felt that absolutely we need to 
we, we've created this created this role. It needs to be played by by a child who is essentially representing his people in terms of the the story that this depicts i.e syrians who have had to flee their home country because of war and just to basically stay alive so it's very important to us but that of course comes with its own challenges because um there aren't too many syrian refugee boys who have a ton of screen experience or, or any as we found out um so but we, we, it's another story about how we found Aham and uh, and his family. So, so to answer that part of the question, he's not a regular actor, right. although now fingers crossed he will become one. Um, and then Rahad, the, the mother, is is uh, a regular actor. Mark, do you want to say something about Rahad? Rahad, uh, well, you know, she's a she's a Syrian born who lives in Scotland and has lived in Scotland for most of her life and has been a trained actor. But she was actually born from in the town of Aleppo where our film is based. Um, and she's got deep, deep, you know, both her parents emigrated um, over to Scotland when she was a very young child. Um, and I think she found this experience of very like, it's kind of really re-engaging with her heritage and her identity. Um, it was quite, as she said in her own words, you know, quite special role for her to play where she really re-identified with her culture through this process. How did you manage to get it included in the Paris Film Festival? What are your thoughts about the Paris Film Festival? Well, we work with uh, a company called Festival Formula, who I would recommend to anyone and the absolutely legendary, wonderful Katie McCulloch. And so she put together a strategy of film festivals that she recommended uh, and, and we, we submitted and lo and behold, we got selected. And I, I, I think that Jenna's, um, I've had a little bit of communication with Jenna and she seems very passionate and very engaged and enthusiastic about promoting positive films that have a positive message uh, through, through the Paris Film Festival. So more power to her arm. Well, what I can say about Jenna is um, every time I've met her, she's been very, very passionate about film irrespective um, every film she is very very passionate about she loves film she lives and breathes film so um just to round this off uh, how can listeners find out more about yourself and your film i mean individually your uh, social media handles and the film's social media handles uh we are at adnan short film so there's a website adnanshortfilm.com we are on instagram primarily uh, but also Facebook and Twitter, uh, Adnan Short Film. And then you can go to our website as well, which is arigochatterton.com, which is, for those paying attention, Mark's surname and my surname, uh, <laughs> .com. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's got all the collection of all our past work and future work and other projects that we've done. Excellent. So, Stephen and Mark, thank you. All right. Thank you, David. Thanks for having us. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and we have another set of filmmakers whose film is currently in the Paris International Film Festival. Uh, I, I'll throw it to them to introduce themselves and the name of the film. My name is Bill Einreinhofer. I am the executive producer of Invisible Love. Hi, my name is Nancy Hanjung Shen. People call me Nancy because it's easier to remember my name. Uh, I'm the producer as well as the first assistant director of the film Invisible Love. Hi, I'm Kazi Toganus. Uh, I'm an actor. I play uh, James Marquis in Invisible Love. Excellent. Thank you very much, William, Nancy, and Kazi. Uh, William, let me throw to you. What is Invisible Love? Well, at its heart, it is a love story. It's a period piece. It takes place in French Indochina, or what was known as French Indochina, during the 1930s. It's the story of a woman who wants nothing more than to love and to be loved, yet is hurt time and again by the men she thinks love her. There's also a, a subtext to the film in that it looks at colonialism and the absolutely corrosive effect that colonialism has on the colonizers, as well as those who were colonized. And how, what was the inspiration behind uh, the making of this film? 
I think in part it grew out of a co-production arrangement that, that the various companies who are involved uh, have been pursuing. This is unique in that it's a China, Vietnam, and U.S. co-production. Frankly, I can't think of any other co-productions like that that have taken place previously. And it's an original, original piece of fiction that was written specifically for this film. And Kazi, um, what, what was it like uh, jumping into, because you play a character called James Marquise, is that correct? Correct. Uh, what, what was it like getting into sort of this, this massive wide scale production uh, from your part? Well, you know, I, I've, I've worked on uh, a, lot of, a lot of different types of films, you know, um, from, from like Dolomite Is My Name with Betty Murphy, it was like a comedy, a period piece. Uh, uh, Equalizer Two with Denzel, uh, so and, and and numerous indie film productions. Uh, but I'll tell you, when I stepped on set for Invisible Love, I'm I'm really a fan of the period piece. One of you know working on on Dolomite was probably one of my favorite productions, just because period pieces always allow you to work on like in 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 a way where you're just thrown into the story. Because as soon as you step on set, like with Invisible Love. Uh, we shot we shot in Hoi An in, in Vietnam, which is a historic city that's remained untouched for years. And it just the just the set pieces alone were like a character in the film. And I landed, you know, coming from the U.S., it's like 12 hours difference. You know, we stepped on set, got into costume. Even when uh, I met with wardrobe and I saw the different type of clothing that I would be wearing I knew that I was going to be in for a treat. And I honestly, I feel when you're thrown into period pieces as an actor, it just really allows you to get into character a lot easier because you're automatically transported into like a whole nother universe. And I, I really just, I just straight up from the, the first day to the last day, I just, I, I enjoyed every moment that I was on set for this production. That, that makes total sense. As in when you, as an actor, when you dive in and you got the costume on and the, and the set around you, it's a lot easier for you to sort of lose yourself in the character. Unlike a contemporary piece, for example, where it might be harder to refocus, but when, you, when, when you're locked in character and you hear action, it's a sense you look at everyone around you and you, it's easy to, to sort of dive into that sort of character. That works perfectly. And I see exactly where you're coming from. Uh, Nancy, as a producer on such a large scale, multinational project, what logistical nightmares did you encounter trying to get this, uh, this uh, project done? You bring the best part of our production. <laughs> <laughs> I, I figured rather than saying what worked well, it's the nightmares I want to hear about. Yes. So our production is... The shooting part, the camera crew, the sound crew are all from China. And actors, we, are, uh, we have Cassie from the United States. We have actors from Vietnam. And also we do need an interpreter, the translator between each other. The director is from China. So the director didn't speak English. Then he need a translator to translate into English as well as translate into Vietnamese. So one, action, one direction, the director was yelling out, we have a lot of echoes coming up, coming to Chinese, coming to English, coming to Vietnamese. That was the like super great part of our production while, while we're shooting. But people are like understanding with each other, not with the um, words, but also with the actions, the face expressions, the understanding of filmmakings. Um, during the production time, we're like, still, we made it. I think yes. this brought something very unique to the production because, you know, usual productions are, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta do it now, hurry, hurry, hurry. Well, we could not hurry. We, you know, we had to take time for translation. So actually we thought very carefully about everything that we were doing. Much of the emotion in the film is not necessarily conveyed in words but in, in gestures and in facial expressions and movement. Um, so in, in, in that sense, I mean, even the, even the whole notion of invisible love, love itself in fact is invisible. The only aspects you can see are how it plays out in, in individuals' lives and individuals' actions. So it was very different from, from any set that I've worked on before. 
It was also unique that at the end of the day, after shooting on a very, very tight schedule, we still all liked each other. And I think we could get some sort of an award for that. Now, with the project itself, uh, although it's coming out in 2021, when did you actually wrap uh, production? I think we wrapped up in early 2019. Ah, okay. So you were able to get, the reason I was asking that was because I wanted to sort of find out if you happen to be hampered by the effects of the coronavirus and the lockdown. But it seems you were lucky enough to be able to finish the production or finish uh, the sh- uh, shoot anyway, at least before all the general lockdown. What sort of impact has the worldwide pandemic had on the production so far? Nancy, maybe you could help me with that. So during the pandemic, everything is locked down, especially in China, because we do the post-production, most of the part in China. As you know, like Beijing, Shanghai, every, every city was locked down. So the director, Direct Guo, because I'm speaking for him, right? So Direct Guo contact each of the company, it is very hard, but still, so like we suffer a lot, but still, and we do the um, dumping the ADR in US, in Vietnam, and in China. So we actually, we do three different parts. So US, we do the ADR. Vietnam, we do Vietnam part. But China, we collect everything everything together and group as a as a whole. Uh, and is the is the story set is the story just set in uh in in Vietnam sorry is it Vietnam or China is, is the story set there or does it move around in uh, across different countries no it's it's it is set in uh, 1930s French Indochina which was primarily Vietnam um, and we did all of our shooting uh in Vietnam uh primarily in Hoi An which is a UNESCO heritage site so Literally, it's this, this, this historic city frozen in time. We also shot material in Da Nang uh, because it, there, were, there were certainly scenes where, where we needed more of an urban setting. We, all, we shot upcountry. Um, it was a fascinating collaboration, challenging, but I think all of us were quite taken by the, by the challenge. That, and the reason why I wanted to ask that, and I wanted to throw it to Kazi, uh, Kazi, I, I know looking at, at your filmography, uh, as you talked about, Dolomite is my name, which has a special place in my heart for many reasons. A lot of your work obviously is, uh, is American based. What was it like traveling to, to Vietnam to immerse yourself in this project? I have to say that, you know, it, 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 you think that it's going to be like a culture shock, right? But it really wasn't because... What I really realized is I was like, film crews, no matter what country you in, they work the same way. And it's funny how like you could just tell from people's energy, like, oh, that guy's definitely a grip. And then you could tell you'd be like, oh, oh, yeah, that's definitely the sound guy. Or you'd be like, oh, that's makeup and wardrobe. It's really funny how like across all cultures, the personality types of the people that are working on the film are are similar. Outside of the language barrier, there was literally nothing uh, different. You know, there, of course, like Bill said, it was, there was a bit of a, of, of a slowdown because, you know, if, if director Guo, who's, who's Chinese, had to give, give me a note, then he would talk to Nancy, then Nancy would come and talk to me. But then if there was a note for like both myself and, you know, uh, the, the, the lead actress, then they would have to split it to, to, to go to like the Chinese they would have to try and, you know, go to the Chinese, to the Vietnamese and back and forth. And then when I wanted to talk to her, it would be this like in between. It was it was to me, that was really it was a challenge. But what what spoke about it really, my, my whole point of saying that, like, film crews kind of have this universal energy was the fact that that universal energy allowed the production to still move forward and still move at, at a good pace to, to get all the shots and to to get all the work done, because you know, human emotion doesn't really have like an, a language. It's, it's, it's universal across every, every country, across every language. So like, to me, it was really um, interesting to be part of a, of a production that even though we couldn't communicate directly, we were still communicating because it was just a group of people all working towards the same goal. 
No, absolutely. No, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. It, it's sort of it's a similar response that I've gotten from other people who we've interviewed who have worked in other areas within Europe where English is not the first language that is spoken on set. And mm. it's almost it's almost the same logistic, you know, set of logistics that are used in any Premier League football team where you have tons of different uh, people from different countries, all with an English or a Spanish uh, or a Dutch coach having to give instructions to all of these different people having interpreters running along the pitch as well so it sort of works in the same fashion uh and it's great to see that you had you had a great experience it wasn't a troubling or less maybe in five years time there's a there's a documentary that comes out about the troubling shoot that was invisible love (laughs) which i hope there i hope there isn't Uh, it seems you all had a good uh, bonding experience on that project and now it's in the Paris International Film Festival. Um, Nancy, maybe I'll throw to you first. How did you get involved uh, or how did you get this project in uh, the uh, Paris International Film Festival? So we submit through the Film film free, Freeway. Film Freeway, yes. For me, uh, Paris International Film Festival is like not only a window, but also a bridge. So give us Paris Film Festival is like give us a window open to help us, letting us know what other filmmakers in the other part of the world, what they are doing right now during the pandemic, but also like um, setting up a platform for all the filmmakers, especially the international independent filmmakers, give us a chance, set up, set up the platform to um, let us communicate with, with each other, encourage us, to still create the great works in this pandemic. Absolutely. And Jenna Suru, who's the uh, president of the Paris International Film Festival, that's her ethos, essentially, to bring independent filmmakers all together, especially with the pandemic, as you said. It's, you know, uh, a lot of productions got shut down in 2020, uh, which is why I was asking when you had finished yours. Uh, Bill, let me ask you this. Uh, what is the, what do you see as the future of the film Invisible Love? Has you, have you found, have you got a distributor um, or are you planning on touring more festivals with the project? We're going to be on the festival circuit for a while. And it's, and it's going to be during that period that we're going to make our distribution deals. This is in fact our world premiere. And, and we were very serious when we, you know, we, we carefully decided that this is where we wanted to do it. We wanted to make our world premiere at the Paris International Film Festival, in part because of the history of France and motion picture. You know, Lumiere brothers were from France. Arguably the very first commercial film screening ever took place in Paris. So it seemed like a wonderful jumping off point for us. I think distribution is probably going to vary from market to market. Uh, in Vietnam, this, this is going to be a theatrical release. In the United States and probably in Western Europe, it's very much going to be a, uh, an art house film. And then following on to that uh, to streaming video. In China, I think there may be a, a short theatrical run, but probably uh, we're going to emphasize digital distribution. Fantastic. We we hope you uh, you come back onto the show to talk to us more when we've got a theatrical release to get more people in Europe and more people in, in Great Britain across the world getting to watch this film from the synopsis that I've heard and from speaking with you really deeply interested in in what in watching this film now. Uh, and uh, it's great to see that all of you are working well together. Are, are you planning on doing maybe, you know, another multinational uh, project where the three of you get to work together again? Or uh, is this a case where it's like, we'll see how it goes and then move on? I think very much it's a see how it goes. But frankly, I think all of us would love to work together again. Kazi, do you agree or disagree? A hundred percent. I would I would work with these guys in a split second. Excellent. Nancy, you can wink if you uh, disagree with the with the two gentlemen. <laughs> I will be very happy to work Cassie and Bill and with the international productions for sure. Fantastic. Thank you. We wish uh, Invisible Love all the best at the Paris International Film Festival. Thank you all of you for joining us uh, today on Shoot the Breeze. Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm producer Dave, and 
we're going to be talking to yet another filmmaker who's got a project which is landing at the Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your name and the name of your film and what it's about. Hi, my name is Catherine Hervey. I'm the director and producer of The Prison Within. It's a feature length documentary that promotes different ideas to the US punitive criminal justice system. And it does this by following a group of men inside San Quentin prison, following their transformational process as they connect the dots of their lives that led to their crime and taking accountability for their crimes. And they're doing this alongside survivors of violent crime, really showing the healing that can come together when people are in conflict actually make decisions for themselves instead of the state. So we're taking as a starting point, uh, prisoners who are inside San Quentin prison. How did you manage to get into San Quentin prison to start your project? That's a good question. It, it took me a while. It probably took me at least a year, probably a little bit more. You, I had to get permission from the very top at the California Departments of Correction and Rehabilitation to the warden and they kept communicating back and forth, back and forth. And I kept poking and being very, very persistent. There's a part of me that thinks they actually finally let me into film because I was so persistent. They just didn't want to deal with me anymore. And I think one of the other things that helped me in is that I also have a lot of history um, in criminal justice contexts. Um, working in prisons, not for the prison, but as a volunteer. Um, I was a former Los Angeles public defender, so I was an attorney in the criminal justice system. So I think I really knew how to appeal to them and speak the language and be less of an outsider coming in. Right, excellent. Now, how did you find the prisoners in, in the film? How accepting were they of your presence? They were, they were extremely accepting. Um, I think that one of the reasons they were so accepting is because, you know, the, the intent of the film is to, is to show them in a, in, a, in a good light and to show their humanity. And I think that was really apparent when I came in. I think also, I, you know, like I said, I had, I, this wasn't my first time in a prison and I have this, feeling this knowledge, which has been confirmed by people who have been incarcerated, is that uh, people who are incarcerated can, you know, smell bullshit from the parking lot, basically. <laughs> which makes sense, which makes sense, right? So, you know, I, I came in with a very open heart for them and for what I was doing, and I think that that was seen and received. So they allowed you to attend some of the victim offender educational groups within the prison? Exactly, yeah. We were able to film three different circles of the men coming together. And on one of them, on the last one, a survivor who was in the film, her name is Dion Wilson. Her husband was murdered, came into that circle as well. And all of the men who are in the circle, they've, they've all been incarcerated for the crime of murder. Your film is all about restorative justice. So what was the inspiration behind the film? I mean, you've come from the criminal, you've come from the criminal justice system yourself and you know about restorative justice and you know about the victim offender education group. What was the inspiration to actually get this documented? That's a good question, thank you. So I was going into a men's prison every week for, for quite some time, for really like a year, a couple of years. And as a volunteer prison college instructor, I was teaching political science course to the men. And, you know, of course, you know, during that time you see a lot, you see the way the prisons work. And I was really developing relationships with these men. And what I realized quite quickly was that most of them had been sentenced to die in prison. So, you know, most of them to this day are still sentenced to die in prison because this is the United States and that's what we do here, okay. which is horrible. Mm. And I was so deeply moved and impressed by the levels of integrity and accountability 
that they conducted themselves with, with me on a daily basis, with each other. It was really deep, deep accountability and integrity for their lives and to really walk in integrity with their with their words, with their actions, with the, in their interactions. And then I would leave the prison walls and go out into the world where theoretically um, we're supposed to be better, quote unquote better. And I would be disappointed. I would ever do that. The, the levels of integrity that I experienced by the men inside prison who supposedly cannot be redeemed and are sentenced to die in prison versus the, the you know, really the pettiness that you encounter in the outside world. And even within myself, that contrast was so stark. It was, it was such a disconnect for me that I think that's really where this film came from. Really, it started with myself and my husband, my now husband, Massimo Bardetti, cinematographer Massimo Bardetti. And we carried the project for about four years. And then it was when producer Erin Kinway came in, who was going to be on this call but couldn't came in. She really um, helped just really pull the film and bring it into fruition the last couple of years. How long did it take for you to do the film then? About six years about six years. So you're filming on and off over a period of six years? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, from development, so to even get in, you know, from development of idea to final, you know, titles, production, everything like that was probably even a little bit over six years. Okay, but how much time did you actually spend in the prison? And was it all at once? So we actually were in two different prisons. Um, and the, the other prison ended up not being in the film. So for San Quentin, when we, when we were there, we were in three different times filming them. And then I was in there other times also working with um, San Quentin TV because we used some of their footage that the men had shot within the prison. So it was three different circles, three different times to kind of show that process over time. Moving on to the, the Paris International Film Festival, how, how did you get involved in that? Well, we, we applied and they liked the film, so here we are. But it's very exciting for us because it's our European premiere. We've been um, appearing in different film festivals throughout the United States all year, and we have distribution in the U.S. too. So right now we're up on you know, Amazon and iTunes, but it's, it's only in North America. So um, we wanted a, a really good European premiere, and this is an amazing festival. And I would also say I'm really excited to see, if, if we do get to see within COVID, the response of European audiences. Because, um, you know, as you know, our criminal justice systems are very different. And my understanding is that you guys, rightfully so, look at us as, oh my God, what are they doing over there? So um, I think that those responses and the reactions to it are going to be very different. So I'm excited to see what that is. Now, how can our listeners get in contact with you to get more information about the film and how they'll be able to see it? Thank you. So many ways. Uh, we have a website, prisonwithin.org which has a contact button there to our Prison Within Film Gmail account. You can also contact us through our Facebook page, which is, uh, it's the Prison Within. Yeah, our Facebook page, the Prison Within. And we also have an Instagram account for the film and we can be contacted through all of that. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, our website, all have direct contacts to us. So the prison within, and then it's either Instagram, Facebook, or the website itself. Yes, yes. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me, Catherine, on the Shoot the Breeze on uh, Resonance 104.4. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. And those were just some of the interviews that we were able to fit into this uh, episode of Shoot the Breeze on Resonance FM. We're going to do another episode, the same episode, uh, but extended, which we'll release on the podcast. You can get it on all 
podcast catching apps as well as on Spotify. And depending on how YouTube decide what to do, they might decide to give us a copyright knock because we're having the take uh, take five theme at the beginning. They might knock it off of YouTube, but if it's not, go check it on YouTube. But anyway, it'll be on Spotify and on your podcasting apps. Definitely go and listen to it so you can listen to some of the exciting filmmakers that we've been talking to. Anyway, enough of me gabbing. Uh, this has been Marcus E. Akko. And producer Dave. Saying thank you very much for listening. And speak to you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.